Well, I certainly love your pastor. Don and I love Herbert and Tiffany and uh, very, very grateful to them for their friendship. And uh, he is uh, become certainly a man that I have grown to uh, cherish and respect uh, as a fellow uh, colleague, just because his heart for the Lord, he talks so positively all the time about people's church, so grateful for what God is doing here uh, in your church family. And we're excited and honored to be here. So uh, just wanted to share that. The other thing is, you know, it can always be a little bit awkward when you're a guest speaker at a church because you don't really know anything about me and I don't really necessarily know anything about you. And so that whole thing can be a little bit awkward. So I just, just share, share with you a few things so you learn a little bit about me and my family. Um, my wife and I, Donna, we've been married for uh, 20 years, going on 21 years this summer. And uh, we have three children, Grant, who is 16, Rebecca, who is 14, soon to be 15 next month, and then our youngest, Cole, who is 11. And uh, I don't know if they had already uh, thrown up but uh, the photo there, but we have a photo uh, of our family, and that was us on a vacation together this past summer. And uh, so I'm blessed to have an amazing family, and we are all together here uh, at, in Oklahoma City for the weekend. And so thank you uh, for having us be a part of uh, your weekend services. Now, I want to say this too, as we're in this series, New You, and uh, we're going to talk about something that's very important about being a new you. But I want to say this, this new you message is going to be hard. Some of you aren't going to like it. Some of you aren't going to want to hear it. But I just believe that what Jesus said, this one thing that we're going to look at, one aspect, one principle, one precept, one concept, I'm telling you, I think it could radically, radically make a new you for many of you. I know that it's made a new me, and uh, so I'm excited about that. Um, so let, let me say a word of prayer for both of our campuses and those watching online, and uh, then uh, we'll dive in. Lord Jesus, I pray for everybody at Midwest City, here in Oklahoma City, and those watching online. Father, my prayer is that you do a great work in all of our hearts, that you move boldly, and that you don't leave us the same as when we tuned in, the same as when we came in, or just hearing your word, Lord, that we, we are absolutely radically changed as a result of this encounter. In Jesus' name, we pray these things. Amen. Listen to this. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink or that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who was not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. 
The vice I am talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. Pride, the essential vice, is of the utmost evil. Unchastity and anger and greed and drunkenness and all that are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. C.S. Lewis. Now that's rich. Pride is something that will well up in us so deep that we don't even hear what God's trying to say to us. Now the message today is not on pride. It's on something else, but pride can do that. Several years ago when we were planting a church in North Atlanta, my wife and uh, our three kids had gone to a Chuck E. Cheese and we were done with the whole pizza thing and playing games and the kids had three balloons and these three balloons were filled with helium and each had their little, you know, ribbons uh, attached to them and... Um, you try to get home three kids and three helium balloons to the house in a minivan, it's just not happening. One of those balloons ended up in the sky somewhere, bye-bye. The other one got popped in the car, and then a fight ensues about who popped whose balloon. One balloon's left between three kids, and my 16-year-old was five. My daughter, who's getting ready to turn 15, she was three, and our youngest was you know, just an infant. And uh, when we got home, my wife said, hey, honey, I need to go to the store. I need to go run a few errands, which I'm like, sure you do. You just need to get away, right, for a little bit. And uh, so she's like, I got to go run some errands. I got to go do some stuff. Will you watch the kids? And we lived in a home that had what was called a great room in Atlanta. It's just a living room, but they called it a great room because they were building houses up because it was cheaper to build a house up, less foundation or concrete and slab, less roof. And so our living room, called a great room, had a two-story ceiling. It was about 20 uh, feet up in the air. And so sure enough, you can imagine where the balloon made it after Donna leaves. The last balloon makes it to the top of the ceiling. Well, my children get around me, two of the three anyway, uh, the five-year-old and three-year-old. And, Daddy, Daddy, get the balloon, get the balloon, get the balloon. I was like, it's too high up there. It's like 20 feet. You can't get that balloon. Daddy, get the balloon. You can get it. You can get it. I can't get the balloon. My boy says, get a ladder, Daddy. Go to the garage and get a ladder. I was like, even if I get a ladder, I can't. So I finally just go in the garage, get the ladder, set it up in the living room there to show him that I cannot get this balloon. And I start my way up the ladder and show him after I get several rungs up that, hey, I cannot reach even anywhere near the balloon. He goes, go higher, Daddy. Go on the next step. Get to the next step. And, and I went up to the next step, the next rung on the ladder, and I'm showing him, and I'm reaching for the ribbon. And I'm like, you can't get it. He goes, go to the next one. And I was on the step at that point that is right below the next step that has the warning label on the top that says, this is not a step, you idiot. At least that's what I think it says, right? And it said, this is not a step. Daddy, go to the next one. Go to the next one. And, and so I finally just stepped up on top of that very top flat part of the step. And I am doing everything I can to reach out to grab the bottom of the ribbon of that balloon. And I'm just too short. And then the little rugrats are down there. They say, get on your tippy toes, Daddy. Get on your tippy toes. And I'm, I'm like, get on my tippy toes. I mean, get on your tippy toes. And then I hear all of a sudden, jump for it, Daddy. Jump for it. And I'm like, you guys are crazy. I'm not jumping for it. And then I finally come down the ladder and say, I can't get it. And they're like, that's okay. Mom will get it when she gets home. 
See, your mother can't get this when she gets home. Say, mom will get it when she gets home. I said, your mom is shorter than me. And this is the tallest ladder that we have in the garage. And I'm taller than her. And I'm telling you, your mom can't reach it. And they're just like, no, that's okay. Mom will get it when she gets home. Mommy will get it. And they can run off to play. And I'm sitting there filled up with pride. And I'm just going, yeah, right. Well, these kids will have to learn a lesson that their mother's not any taller. She can't get that balloon. About an hour later or so, Donna comes home. She walks in. The minute that she comes in that door, the kids run. And she looks right at me and she says, what's the ladder doing in the living room? I said, oh, the balloon, blah, 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 the kids, you know, all this. And they said that you could get it. And they're, mommy, mommy, get the balloon, get the balloon. And she looks right at the kids and goes, okay, no problem, calm down, I'll get it. And I'm like, you will not get that balloon. And she walks right in the laundry room and grabs a broomstick, walks to the junk drawer, opens it up, takes Scott tapes, puts it on the end, walks right up the ladder, touches it to the ribbon, holds the balloon, brings it down, and hands it to the kids. That's not funny. That's like rude. I'm a guest speaker. Treat me with some respect. You know what I'm saying? And then she mumbled something. I think my wife, the kids ran off, and my wife mumbled something like, bless your heart. And uh, which if you're from Texas, nobody's doing you a favor when they bless your heart. You think it's so not, oh, bless their heart. That's just code language for you're so stupid. That's exactly what it means. Kid wrecks on his bicycle, bless his heart. You know, I mean, it's just kind of the way Texas is about things. So anyway, pride will keep you from seeing the obvious. Pride will have you miss out on the simple. Jesus comes around on one subject to make us a new you, and he says, here's what you need to do. Boy, our pride fills up, the mask goes on, the walls erect, and the excuses start flowing about why we don't need to forgive them. About why they, they owe us an explanation. They owe me an apology, then I'll forgive. They owe me an explanation, then I'll forgive. They owe me what they stole from me, my reputation, then I, with the gossip. They owe me what they embezzled from. They owe me the betrayal, the friendship. They, they just give me back the money, then we're good. And see, we have this mindset that we forgive so long as somebody pays us back what they owe us. The Apostle Paul comes along in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, first verse I ever memorized as a brand new believer. I was 17 years old, and this scripture floored me, and it certainly is about a new you. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. That's a new you. But then he says, but that's not enough. Let me tell you what happens when you become a new you. And then he goes on and he hands us this ministry, a new ministry for all brand new Christians. And the apostle Paul in God's word says this, verse 18, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So this is pretty simple. God first reconciles himself to me through his son and his shed blood on the cross and to you. And then what does he do, people's church? Then he says, and then I do what? I hand to you a ministry of reconciliation. To which you say, well, that's not what I want. And he says, that's not how it works. The deal is this. I forgive you, God says, Tommy Paul, I forgive you through my son's shed blood on the cross for something you could never pay back in a lifetime. You can't make up for all the iniquities, all the sin, all the junk, all the impurity. You can't do it. So my son's blood covers you by grace, through mercy, the sacrifice of the crucifixion on the cross. And the resurrection, 
validates it through victory over sin and death. And when you received him as Lord and Savior, I reconciled myself to you. But now I'm asking you, Tommy Pulitz, I hand to you. People's Church, God says, I hand to you a ministry of reconciliation. Paul goes on to say this, though. Don't miss this. Look at this. It says this. That God was reconciling the world to himself, verse 19. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. How? By not counting men's sins against them. The way God did this, he just said, Tommy, I won't count your sins against you anymore. You don't owe me. What do you want me to do, Lord? I want you to go and offer the same thing to everybody else. What's that? Quit counting their sins against them. Quit telling them they owe you. You withhold forgiveness and a ministry of reconciliation because you're still holding their sins against them. Well, Lord, what do you want? No, he's not saying here that full restoration takes place when we forgive. It doesn't mean that the relationship has to go necessarily back to exactly what it was before. That's another message for another day. Reconciliation and restitution and restoration are separate concepts. But when we get to this idea of reconciliation, that is what God did, that he forgave me. He forgave you, people's church. And what did he do? He forgave us by not counting our sins against us and saying, you no longer owe me debt paid. By the blood of Jesus. Now I hand to you, Tommy, a ministry of reconciliation with everybody you think that has wronged you or hurt you. I need you to do something. I need you to love them by being reconciled to them in the same way. Quit counting and holding their sins against you. Quit saying what they owe you. Just forgive them because they can't pay you back anyway. Now, Jesus wants us to understand how serious he was about this. If you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 18. If not, the words will be on the screens and available. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? which in Jewish culture, it was three times on certain sins. And then you could like withhold forgiveness in, in a certain way. It's kind of complicated, but they had all these rules and systems. Then Jesus answers Peter, who probably thinks, man, I'm being really gracious. I mean, three times I've gone seven. That's like double the grace. Good biblical number seven. So he thinks that he's really, you know, being spiritual here. And Jesus answers and says, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Twitch, you read that. If you take it literal, you're like, well, good. Then on the 78th time, whack, I just let my husband have it if he's not, you know. No, that's not what Jesus means. And Jesus is speaking with hyperbole, with extreme, extreme exaggeration. This hyperbolic expression that Jesus uses, what he's really saying here is, as I tell you not seven times, Peter, but 77 times, he might as well have just said this. And this is the way we should translate the Greek in theory and idea is this, forgive relentlessly. Forgive without ceasing. You, you forgive and forgive, but they don't deserve it, Lord. They owe me. You can keep counting their sins against them, or you want to do what I did for you is the message. Jesus is such a masterful storyteller, isn't he? So he goes in to explain so that Peter and the other disciples that are all around, those that are following him, they will understand so clear. So Jesus tells this parable so that nobody is mistaken about what he means about forgiveness. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, 
A man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him, which in today's culture, let's say it's about like $10 million. The point being that 10,000 talents for the average wage earner back then with future cash flows in biblical times, first century New Testament Christianity, couldn't pay it back in two lifetimes. The point is, it's not possible if you turned over all your wages and could live two full lifetimes over, you're not paying this back. That's the point that Jesus is making. So as he began to settle the accounts, a man who owed 10,000 talents was brought to him. Verse 25, since he was not able to pay, it didn't matter if he wanted to pay, it didn't matter if he had a desire to pay, he was what? Unable to pay. Since he was unable to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Back then they had debtor's prison. And so if you couldn't pay off your MasterCard or your American Express, make your car payment, there's no bankruptcy. There's no foreclosure. You sell the women. You sell your wife. You sell the the children off. They go to debtor's prison. You work off the debt to get your family back. That's intense. There's also an assumption made there that you want her back, right? I mean, that's an assumption they're making, right? I mean, I'll just keep her. It wasn't working out too good anyway. I mean, so the debtor's prison, well, you know, is working, I guess, if you want her back. So, but this is serious. You love your family? Debtor's prison. Times have changed for us. So Jesus says this. He goes on to tell the story. The servant fell on his knees before him. Verse 26, be patient with me, he begged the king and the master, and I'll pay back everything. Look at that. Be patient with me. And I falls on his knees begging, I'll pay it all back. I'll pay it all back. I'll pay what I owe you. I'll pay you all the debt. I'll pay you the 10,000 talents. I'll pay you the 10 million bucks. But the servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. You know why he looked at him and had compassion and pity and let him go? Because he knows in two lifetimes he couldn't pay this back. It doesn't matter that he wants to pay it back. It doesn't matter that he's begging to pay it back. He knows that he can't pay it back. So he says, I just forgive you. And he cancels the debt and he says, you no longer owe me. What do we call this? Debt forgiveness. He forgave the debt Verse 28, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants, owed him a hundred denarii. Like our culture, it's one Benjamin, hundred bucks. Owes him a hundred dollars. So he finds him, he grabbed him and he began to choke him. He said, pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay you back. Sounds awfully familiar, doesn't it? But what did he do? Verse 30. This man who'd just been forgiven of millions of dollars of debt, 10,000 talents, finds a buddy, owes him 100 bucks, starts choking him out after the king and the master had just forgiven him. Verse 30. But he refused. He refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed and went and told their master everything that happened. So Jesus is telling this story to Peter and the disciples. You want to know how many times to forgive? Let me tell you a story. I think you're missing the point. Let me tell you a story about two guys. This one guy's forgiven of a whole lot, millions of dollars. And as soon as he's forgiven, he goes out and finds a guy who only owes him a hundred bucks. And then he throws him into prison, even when this guy begs for him not to be. Well, then when the master finds this out, and who's the master in the story anyway? Jesus is the master, the heavenly father. God in the flesh, he's the master. So he's telling Peter this. He's like, what's the connection? Wait a second. 
Hasn't the heavenly father, Peter, forgiven you of an awful lot, like millions and millions and millions of dollars worth of sin? And what are you going to sit here and ask how many times you forgive one of your brothers or sisters in Christ? How, many, how are you going to get to a place where you say, ah, well, you know, just doesn't work out that way because after all, and we fill in the blanks about what happened. Because for some of you, I mean, you had a mom or a dad walk out on you when you were a child, abandoned you. Some of you, you haven't talked to a sibling, a brother or sister in 14, 15 years. Something happened, seven years. Something happened at Christmas. Somebody said something at Thanksgiving at the table. Something happened in your childhood, and it's just like you can't forgive. You can't move on. Some of you, he walked out. She walked out. It's like a lady in our church several years ago. A guy walks out on a 20-something-year-old young lady, three little bitty beautiful children at home to be raised by herself on a school teacher's salary, and he hightails it off with his new girlfriend to New Jersey. She's heartbroken devastated. Some of you have been burned by friends, gossip behind your back, ruined your reputation. Some of you, you went into a business deal and somebody embezzled money or stole an idea. Somebody else got a promotion at work because they took your idea. Boy, there's a lot of reasons to hold grudges and resentment and bitterness in this world. And God says, I forgave you by not counting your sins against you. And I hand you a ministry of reconciliation. Peter says, yeah, but how many times? Jesus goes, let me tell you a story. And he gets to this point in the story. Verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison. Look at verse 32. Then the master called the servant in, you wicked servant. Now, when Jesus says somebody's being wicked, I think it's time to listen up. How about you? You wicked servant. I think so too. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? The answer is yes. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. Reminds me of other words of Jesus when he was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says this on that mountainside. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. So it seems like Jesus has taken this principle that he's taught earlier and said, I want to make a new you out of you, but I can't do it until you understand that you must forgive the same way that I have forgiven you, Tommy Poltz. How is that? I chose not to count your sins against you because I knew you couldn't pay it back. So what do you do for those who you can't seem to forgive in this lifetime? Hold a grudge? No. Be resentful? No. Get angry? No. Hate them? No. Jesus says, no, a ministry of reconciliation has been handed to you. What do you want to do? And this story, you know Peter and Mary and Martha and whoever else was around was saying, they're going, wow, we're out of excuses now. Because we all think we're the exception. I mean, if you went to lunch with me and had a hamburger with me, you'd tell me your story. It'd be a heart-breaking, heart-wrenching story. But you feel, don't you? We feel like, I feel like, you feel like we think that we're the exception. But there's not an exception. So then Jesus boils this all down to one, one deal. Last verse, verse 35. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you. Well, I listen up on that. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your, say it with me, from your, from your heart. Now, this, this doesn't look like anything about 
them bringing justice. This doesn't look like they're making amends or restitution for what happened. So I guess I've come all the way from Amarillo, Texas, invited by Pastor Herbert with a one-point message. I don't know what kind of sermons you usually get, multiple points. So if this isn't worth much, you only get one point today. If you don't like it, then send Herbert the email and tell him we need more than one-point preachers. Pastor Herbert, get one point because I think Jesus makes one point. Lest you forgive your brother from your heart. Forgiveness, people's church, is not a justice issue. It's a heart issue. Forgiveness has never been a justice issue in God's economy. Forgiveness never will be a justice issue in God's economy, although he will bring justice. That's not the point. That's a different doctrinal message. Forgiveness itself, is it just that he who knew no sin died in my place on the cross for my wretched sins? That's not justice. It's love. It's forgiveness. He'll bring justice. So in order for me to forgive, I've got to forgive the same way by not counting men's sins against them. I was born in 1967 in Scottsdale, which is a suburb of Phoenix, Arizona. My parents divorced shortly after I was born. They separated. My dad moved to Dallas, Texas, moves the headquarters of his business and his company, starts another business, very entrepreneurial, makes a lot of money over a lot of years, becomes a very wealthy businessman in North Dallas. My mom, she took off. I don't know where she ended up going. My grandparents raised me for the first two years of my life, two years. My dad finally meets a woman, marries her, and uh, sends for me. So right around my second birthday, I moved from Scottsdale to Dallas, Texas, and I start to grow up with this new family. Got my dad, got a new stepmom who ends up adopting me legally at the courthouse in Dallas County when I'm about eight years old. I inherit two new older stepbrothers because she had already been married previously, and so I inherit two older stepbrothers, and then they have a, a, a boy together, so I end up with a half-brother, a younger half-brother. And then when I was in seventh grade, 13 years old, they say, boys, we need you to sit down around the kitchen table. Your mother and I have something to share. And they shared that they were getting a divorce. So they said, so choose who you want to live with. Well, I didn't feel like I could choose my mom. because She was my adopted mom, my stepmom, even though she'd raised me like mom. So I chose to go live with my father. Well, I went with my dad. But then the summer between my sophomore Freshman and sophomore years, I was 15 years old. Between my freshman year and sophomore year, that summer, my dad and I had a really bad falling out. When I was younger, I would have said it was his fault as I've gotten older, hopefully a little wiser, a little more mature as God has broken me. You know, in life, he crushes us and remakes us and does new things with us. Um, I, I can say to you honestly now, I think it was as much me or more me than it was just even my father. We had a bad falling out. I ran out the front door of the house. We wouldn't speak hardly at all, if at all, I don't really remember for a year. I ran back to Patty's home, my uh, stepmother or my adopted mother, and I said, can I live with you? She said, as long as you don't cause any trouble, you can. Well, she fell back in love with another man, moves up to McKinney, Texas, out of the North Dallas area, and goes to live with this guy and ends up marrying this rancher. She says, as long as you won't cause any more problems, you can stay there and live in that house uh, until you graduate. I didn't want to go to Plano Senior High where my dad lived. I didn't want to go to McKinney High School where my mom was. So I stayed at J.J. Pierce High School there in Richardson area. We lived right there on the line of Dallas and Richardson, Texas. And I lived by myself my sophomore, junior, and senior years in high school. Now, I wasn't a Christian because I didn't know the gospel. 
fact, my family, we grew up going to the Greek Orthodox Church. My dad's full-blooded Greek, and we would go at Christmas. We'd go at Easter. We also might go whenever their father, Katinas, would drop by the house, give a visit because we hadn't been in a long time, and I knew that my parents would feel guilty, so I'd tell my brothers, hey, I bet we go to church this weekend, that kind of a thing. And uh, we'd step in church, but I didn't understand the gospel. I didn't know about what Jesus had done on the cross. I certainly didn't understand grace. And so one night after a basketball game, it was a Tuesday, and uh, this guy that I had developed a friendship with, a fellow classmate who was also a junior, he was an 11th grader in the same uh, class with me at J.J. Pierce High School. His name was Doug Miller. One night after a basketball game uh, where we were on the same team, we went to go eat pizza at Pizza Inn Restaurant on Coit Road. And Doug, that night, here's my testimony. Here's my story about what happened. Well, we had started really developing a great friendship. He was an awesome guy, very intelligent, very humble, great athlete. There was something different about him, but I couldn't pinpoint what it was. And that night, he, after hearing my story, said, I bet you're pretty lonely. And I said, yeah, it can be lonely. Talked about insecurities, talked about just very vulnerable conversation. At the, towards the end of that conversation, he says, you know, I'd, I'd like to tell you about something that means the most important, it's the most important thing in my life. And he starts telling me about Christ. He starts telling me about his family and about their love for the Lord. Well, Doug shares the gospel with me right there eating pizza. And I'd like to tell you, I gave my life to Jesus then, but I didn't. After eating, we got in his 1984 maroon Ford Mustang, drove to that house where I was living by myself. And then once again, more conversation. And at the end, he was so bold. He said, hey, I just want to ask you this. Would you, Tommy, like, would you like to give your life to Christ right now? I said, Doug, I really want to, but you got to understand, I got so many skeletons in the closet. I got so many problems. I got so many issues. I want to get my life right first, and then God could accept me one day. He said, that's not how it works. He tried to explain it to me. I didn't understand it that night, but I'm telling you, I went into that empty house by myself and I could not sleep very well. And it was like a scratched record on a record player over and over and over. I kept hearing the same thing. And for those of you that are so young, you're like, what's a record player? Ask somebody after the service if you're not sure what a record player is, all right? So, um, so, so I just, it was the Holy Spirit. It was Christ's Spirit working on me. And, and I was under such deep conviction. Well, I didn't give my life to Christ that night, but the next morning I woke up, I went to first period, then second period, then I get to third period. Third period is my Spanish class. Mrs. Rush is up at the blackboard conjugating Spanish verbs. Ablos, ablos, ablamos. I'm not paying any attention at all. I couldn't help. I just kept thinking about all the things that Doug had said to me and shared with me. So right there in about 30 students as a 17-year-old kid, in the winter of 1985, I bowed my head down on that desk. Now I didn't do this. I just crossed my arms over like this, put my head down, and I prayed, and I said to Jesus, I said, Jesus, if what Doug said is true, then I need you. I need you to forgive me. I need you to come in my life. I need you to change me. I need you to be my Lord and my Savior. I prayed that. I also prayed while I was praying that, that Mrs. Rush wouldn't call on me while I was praying this prayer. And I got to tell you, I'm not an expert in much, but I am an expert in my own, te my own testimony. I felt a supernatural transformation. I mean, the Lord did a work in me immediately. And as soon as that bell rang, I sprinted out of that classroom. I ran down the hallway. Doug, Doug's locker was about six or seven lockers down from mine. I said, hey, Doug, hey, Doug. He's like, what's up? What's up, man? I said, I did that thing we were talking about last night. He said, what thing? I said, you know, that Jesus thing. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, you know, giving my life to Jesus. 
And he said, what did you do? I said, I prayed. Prayed to receive Christ. He said, when? I said, in Spanish. He goes, in Spanish? And I said, no, 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 in English. I prayed the prayer in English in Spanish class. I didn't like pray it in Spanish because my Spanish wasn't that good. I might have prayed to be an un pero, Lord, make me a dog or something like that. I said, I prayed it in English in the Spanish class. And he looks right at me. He says, what did you pray? And I told him what I prayed. And he says, close enough. And I said, Doug, this isn't horseshoes and hand grenades, man. I need to know, did I or didn't I give my life to Jesus? And I want to tell you something. It wasn't a pastor that discipled me. It wasn't an adult that discipled me. It wasn't my parent or my grandfather that discipled me. It was a 16-year-old fellow 11th grade junior who loved Jesus Christ with all of his heart and his word, and he taught me the scriptures. And you can clap for that at all the campuses. Absolutely. He taught me the scriptures. He taught me about walking with the Lord. And you start to read things like this. I just wanted, whatever Jesus says, that's what I want to do. But then we get prideful and it's like, oh, no, no, let me tell you my excuses, Jesus, about why I'm not doing this anymore. But Doug, what a dear friend, never would have expected. So for the next year and a half till we graduated and I went off to Baylor University and he go off to Texas A&M, we talked about God and the scriptures and sports and girls. And not necessarily in that order, mind you. We weren't that spiritual, okay? And um, man, what a great thing. Doug died of a brain tumor at 29 years of age, left behind a two and a half year old girl. It was like losing one of my best friends. Always grateful to Jesus for bringing Doug into my life. 10 years later, at 27 years old, I'd lay eyes on my biological mother for the first time in my life. Never had met her. It's her fault, mind you. I'm the one who has the right to be angry and resentful. I was the kid. I was the one that was abandoned. But now I've got Jesus in my heart and I've got this ministry of reconciliation thing going on. And I've got some conflict going on because I'm resentful of her. I get a phone call from her. She says, I'd like to meet you. I say, why? After 27 years, Beverly, do you want to meet? She said, there's some things that need to be said. So we set up an appointment to meet at DFW Airport, 1994, September of 94. This was back when you could actually meet your loved ones at the gate pre-9-11. And uh, my wife and I had been married for two years and I was so glad that she was going to be going there with me. And I was so nervous about meeting her. And I had this whole pride thing. I didn't really want to meet her, but I really did want to meet her. It's like I'm acting resentful like I don't want to. But then part of me inside, I just wanted to lay eyes on the woman whose, who, whose womb God had breathed the breath of life into that I came from. And I also did. I wanted to know why. Why did you abandon me? Why have you not been here? Why, why did you didn't call all, over all the years? We were living at the time in a little one-bedroom efficiency apartment uh, in Valley Ranch in Irving, which uh, is real close to the headquarters of the Dallas Cowboys, God's favorite team by far, which, by the way, that's how I met your pastor, Herbert, Cooper, Pastor Herbert, met him at a Dallas Cowboys football game with other pastors, fell in love with his heart. He was wearing a Tony Romo jersey, which I was like, oh, man, Herbert, bless your heart. Anyway... um, (laughs) So we, we headed to the airport that day from Valley Ranch, and uh, on the way, my wife says, you know, when we were walking down the concourse towards the jetway, you, you remember the stuff you said so pridefully? I'm not calling her mom. I tell you two things, honey. I'm not calling her mom, and, and I'm not hugging her neck. I mean, that's, uh, ma, that's so cheesy. That'd be ridiculous if I do that you know, after all these years. And then we all of a sudden realize, oh, my goodness, I don't know what she looks like. She doesn't know what I look like. We don't have any photos. We don't have any pictures. So we're heading down there, 
and the plane had gotten there a little bit early, and all of a sudden, it was like a bad Hollywood movie. It was like this crowd parted, and a beam of light from DFW ceiling came down on this woman, and I'm telling you, I was like, I was looking at a full-on Tommy Shemel. I knew that that was my mom. My dad always said I had her cheekbones, I had her skin color, she had my eyes, I had her eyes, and you know that nervousness feeling when your heart's pounding? You can feel it down in your fingertips. Your hands are sweaty. And I got all the way over there and, and just like, what do I do? What do I say? And so after we finished hugging, I uh, started walking back. I'm glad you all think that's funny. Uh, and I think my wife then, right after I finished hugging her, like turned to me and whispered in my ear, bless your heart. And uh, we, so we kept walking down and we got back to the apartment. All I wanted to know was why. Why weren't you there? My first day of kindergarten. Why'd you miss my wedding? You missed my baptism when I became a believer, 17 years old, you know. You weren't there at my sports banquet when I lettered in a couple of sports my sophomore year. You, my junior, you, you, missed, you missed everything. You weren't there when I was throwing up so bad from food poisoning when I was living by myself as a sophomore, 16-year-old, that I almost died because I knew no better than to go to the hospital and didn't realize how bad I was dehydrating. You weren't there. Why? Why? And her hands were shaking, her voice was quivering, and her, her eyes were filled with tears, and she was trying to explain some things, and then it was like God just said, Tommy, just say it. I said, oh, no, Lord, she needs to say it. No, 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 you say it. No, no, Jesus, she did this. I was just a little kid. I didn't know any better. I was an infant. She did this. She walked out. She's the parent, Tommy. Say it. And it wasn't like an audible voice, Tommy, say it. I mean, it wasn't like God's like doing that. But I just knew. You know when you have the Holy Spirit coming down upon you and you know you need to respond? And if you don't, this may be a critical juncture in your life that you'll have regrets the rest of your life if you don't say yes to God. It's one of those moments. Just say it. So I reached my hand out while she was in the middle of her explanation. I put it on her shoulder. I said, you know what, Beverly? It really just doesn't matter. I forgive you. Let me tell you, she starts bawling and crying. My wife's sitting next to me. My wife starts bawling. I'm still negotiating with God over the whole deal. (laughs) There's tears flowing. And you know what happened on that day, People's Church? I had her contained with my bitterness and my resentment. I had her in this, had, had her behind a door. Had her locked away behind a door. Shut out of my world. And on that day, I put my hand on the doorknob to let her out. And I opened that door. And instead, I came walking out. You want a new you? Open the door to whoever it is that you are so unwilling to have a ministry of reconciliation with. Open the door and be Set free yourself. Amen. Let's pray.